Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of the Asking for a Friend podcast. It's an elder-led ministry of Believers Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. And my name is Duffy Henderson and I'm your host. Well, the Asking for a Friend podcast exists as a weekly resource for the edification and the benefit of God's people. Here we hope to provide helpful, thoughtful, and most importantly, biblical material as we address everyday life issues and questions. So if you find this episode helpful today, please take a few moments to share it with someone that you think would also benefit from it. Thank you for listening in today, and may the Lord bless this episode in particular greatly to you as a means of grace for your spiritual growth and your benefit. And I'm excited to have uh, Pastor Jim Osmond back on the podcast. We interviewed him last summer, a great episode. And if you haven't listened to that one, please go check that out. Um, We interviewed him about um, one of his books, God Doesn't Whisper. It's an excellent resource. I would highly encourage you to read it, um, pick it up and check it out. It'll at least get you thinking about maybe some assumptions that you have that may or may not be um, very biblical for a Christian to have. It's an excellent resource. But today, um, I'm excited to have Jim back on. Jim, how are you today? I'm doing very well, Duffy. Thanks for having me on. I'm honored to be on your podcast. Wonderful. I'm, I'm thankful that you agreed to take a little time of your day to, to talk about. So today, we're going to talk about another one of your books. You've written several books. How many books have you written, by the way? I've that, written four that are published, and I've got one that's on the cusp of being published really soon called God, oh. God Doesn't Try. Oh, I love the sound of the title. Great. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Um, I, I, I would take a wild guess at what that one's going to be about. It's just uh, about God doesn't try to do anything. He either does or he doesn't, but he's not making an effort and failing to accomplish anything. Amen. Yeah, it sounds great. Well, today we want to talk about your book specifically written about spiritual warfare in the life of the Christian. It's called Truth or Territory. And what you've done here, and I want to, this episode kind of is going to serve as a teaser. Um, our church is going to be going through this book on a Wednesday, a Wednesday night study during the summer this year. Um, our, our pastor, Jason, uh, one of my co-hosts here on the podcast, um, he's going to be taking our adults through this book and just talking about and looking at spiritual warfare from a biblical point of view. And you've done a fantastic job. Now, Thank as you. a side note, recently I just heard um, the Ask, uh, not the Asking for, the Just Thinking podcast yeah. with Daryl and Virgil. And I love those guys. And yep. they, I wasn't expecting it, but they actually uh, recommended your book and said it's one of the best books on the issue. And I agree with them. Um, I didn't know they were going to even reference the book in that episode. It was wonderful to hear. And so um, it looks like some folks are talking about this. And if you've got Daryl and Virgil talking about your book, <laughs> it's pretty solid stuff. <laughs> yeah, those guys are some heavy hitters. They're good men. Amen. That's right. That's right. Um, well, uh, so, Jim, just by way of introduction, just to, just a just a very general question for you: Why did you write this book? Um, it's a very fascinating topic to write on, and I would say that a lot of the area of writing in this that you would find in pop level writing, um, you're writing in a in a kind of polemical tone against it. There's there's a you're not kind of in the the big camp of spiritual warfare books. So, what what made you write this book? I, I came to understand that there's a lot of confusion about the subject of spiritual warfare, mostly because I was caught up in this modern spiritual warfare movement uh, soon after I became a believer and I went to Bible college. And I come from a non-church-going family where none of my relatives ever attended church. I had great-grandparents who were believers who attended churches, and but none of my extended family did and followed in those footsteps. So I, of course, had a zeal to lead them to Christ and share the gospel with them. And I think it was in my first year at Bible college, I was given an audio cassette tape. It was back in the day when we listened to cassettes, and those were actually a thing. But I was given an audio cassette tape of how to lead your loved ones to Christ. And I listened to that tape and took notes and, and just devoured it because I was hungry to be be able to do that very thing. And the, the audio cassette promoted practices like praying hedges of thorns. So it, it had a very systematic approach to evangelism. First thing you need to do is pray a hedge of thorns around your unbelieving, um, relatives and friends, anybody that you want to share the gospel with, you pray a hedge of thorns so that the Satan can affect them in their mind. And then you have to plead the blood of Jesus over them in in Jesus name, plead the blood over them over and over again to loosen up the strongholds. And then you need to pray against specific 
demons that might be attached to sins like alcoholism or pornography or lust or tobacco or uh, gossip or whatever sins you can identify, you pray specifically against those demons and, of course, pleading the blood of Jesus over them. And then rebuke the devil a few times so he knows his place. And then once you've done all of that, then you can go about the business of, of sharing the gospel with them. And this was allegedly to sort of weaken the enemy's uh, stranglehold on that territory of your loved one and <clears throat> make it easier for you to share the gospel and lead them to Christ. So I bought into that hook, line, and sinker took notes, got the pattern down, started doing this very thing for all of my friends and family members whom, whom I wanted to lead to the Lord. And uh, I, I practiced this for a couple of years, got caught up into it. And of course, in the early 1990s, I went to Bible college in 1990. And this was just when this present darkness and piercing the darkness, the Frank Peretti novels were were becoming big and oh, yeah. Uh, sellers. Yeah. And so I, I read that along with, uh, I read both those books in my first year of Bible college, along with all the other guys in the dorm as well. It was a big thing. The books are being passed around and everybody's reading about them and talking about. And I, I approached those books, not like they were fiction, but more like they were spiritual warfare manuals. So I started praying specifically against certain demons and for certain angels and, and all of that nonsense. It wasn't until a couple of years later, <clears throat> when I was in my third year at Bible college, that a friend shared the book, A Holy Rebellion, by Thomas Ice and Robert Dean Jr. And that transformed my view of spiritual warfare, where I started to step back and analyze whether these practices of praying a hedge of thorns, rebuking the devil, and uh, casting out generational strongholds, and renouncing generational curses, and pleading the blood of Jesus, whether all that was really biblical or not. I started to question that and do my own deep dive study. And by the time I was in my fourth year at Bible college, I had abandoned the entire spiritual warfare perspective. Then when I started pastoring a church in 1996, I started getting questions from people who were reading books about spiritual warfare, asking me questions about what about rebuking uh, demons and should we be pleading the blood of Jesus? What about a generational cur curses and hedges of thorns and exorcisms? And so I wrote a series of articles in our church newsletter just to compile basically like a 16-part series on that subject explaining some of the dangers and the difficulties with these practices. And those 16 articles then kind of morphed their way into a book. And I published it originally as a fundraiser for a new church building, which we're in now. And um, I, I couldn't be more pleased with how the Lord has used it. Um, coming out of uh, having come out of that movement, that's why I had, a, I had a desire and a longing to see other people delivered from this very superstitious approach to spiritual warfare. That is fascinating. I think there are a lot of Christians uh, listening to this, whoever might listen to this, that can relate to something that you've just said, if not fully, but in part. Um, you know, I've, I was raised in the Southern Baptist um, world. Uh, I was born in 1991. So uh, I was raised with Frank Peretti, but as a kid. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading him and in, in some of the... Uh, some of the novels. And so I have, I remember that very, and those were kind of shocking. They were really fascinating, but yeah, I was a kid. Uh, great fiction. I mean, it's great fiction. It's great. Fi it really, he's a great writer. It's a really horrible good theology, fiction. horrible theology, <laughs> but great fiction. Uh, I, I would concur. Yes. <laughs> and so that, that's really fascinating. Okay. Well, I want to, we're not going to look at a lot. I mean, this is a little over 200 pages, so again, like I said, I want to use this as kind of a teaser or to whet someone's appetite with this episode today, but I want to read the very last thing that you put in the book. It's chapter 16. It's a very short chapter and the chapter is entitled conclusion, a final appeal. And so this is what you actually put in after someone has already read the book, but I love this. And I kind of want to begin the episode at the end and you write sure. this, the present confusion and unbiblical practices of the spiritual warfare deliverance ministry movement is nothing more than another sad manifestation of the modern church's lack of belief in the sufficiency of God's word. It is my prayer that God will use the truth of his word to expose error and bring down every false ideology raised up against the knowledge of God, even the false ideology of the spiritual warfare movement. And I think that that is the pressure point. That's the, uh, the fulcrum. The, the breaking point right there is the sufficiency of God's word. Um, and your other book, God Doesn't Whisper, those those are the two, that's the underlying um, 
fundamental baseline that you're writing from is the sufficiency of the word of God. Am I right? It is. Yeah. In fact, three of the four books that I have in print, I have to deal with sufficiency of scripture issues. Yes. I think it's the, I think it is the weakness of the church, the modern church. I think that you can walk into almost any evangelical church in America and they will have as part of their doctrinal statement, their file cabinet theology, they will have an affirmation of the belief in the sufficiency of scripture because nobody wants to come out really in, in evangelical circles like you and I swim in and say, well, I just don't believe the scripture is sufficient. I need something more. I just don't believe God's given me everything I need. They, they don't want to say that. And so they will affirm the sufficiency of scripture in word, but it is in practice where the sufficiency of scripture is denied. Um, it's when you affirm the sufficiency of scripture with your words and then say, but I need to hear from God to make this decision. I need special revelation or know who to marry or what house to buy. Or I need special revelation from God to know what demon I'm supposed to cast out or what demon has a stronghold over our local, uh, our, our local neighborhood. And, and it's that it's, it's that it's in the practice that the denial of the sufficiency of scripture sort of comes out of the lifeblood of a church or of a believer. Yeah. And I would say like both of these uh, issues, both your, both the book we interviewed you last summer on and this one, both also deal with not only the sufficiency of the word of God, but also the role of the Holy spirit within the life of the Christian. And so this, the, the concept of the spirit led or the spirit driven life, you know, is, you know, there's so many, uh, there's so much bad writing out there about what the Holy Spirit and His role is. One of my, one of my, fa- one of my heroes is John Owen, and he's he wrote extensively on the Holy Spirit in the, in the realm of sanctification. Yeah, and uh, you're probably, I think, is that the green set right behind you? Uh, yeah, that's is that Owen? Yeah, that's the works, the complete works of John Owen. Yeah, awesome. That's a it's a great set, and yeah. so uh, yeah, so. There's just a confusion, I think, overall, and you're hitting some pressure points um, with evangelicalism as a whole, but you're hitting some really good pressure points with the role of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And the the ditch is obsessive about the Holy Spirit and no Word, and the other ditch is all Word, no Holy Spirit. That's right. Would you agree with that? Yeah, Yeah, I think those are the two ditches, and I think you have to you have to combine both of those. You, you have to have room for the work of the Holy Spirit and the word. And the, the key is that the Holy Spirit works through the word to accomplish Amen. his purpose in our lives. So even in terms of decision-making, which we talked about in connection yeah. with God doesn't whisper the, the role of the spirit of God in inclining our hearts and giving us wisdom and understanding in his word, illuminating our hearts and minds by his word uh, through his power, as we read and study scripture, that, that work of the Holy Spirit is essential in equipping us to live God-glorifying and God-honoring lives even as we make decisions and, and live according to his word. And then with the spiritual warfare um, emphasis and sanctification, it is the truth. And, and that's why I, I titled the book Truth a Territory, because spiritual warfare is not a territory battle. It's a truth battle. We are really, we are really, um, we're really fighting a battle over truth versus lies, ideologies, and yes. strongholds and mental fortresses. That's what we're up against. And so it's not that we are claiming territory, earthly territory, hotel rooms and conference centers and neighborhoods for the gospel. It's that we are out proclaiming the truth and, and using the sword of the word of God to, to assault people's false ideologies with the truth of scripture, with the truth so that we can bring them down and, and liberate men from their isms and their falsehoods and the beliefs that keep them held up in their mental fortresses uh, against the knowledge of the true and living God. So it's a truth war, not a territory war. I love that. You, you, you mentioned just now liberating people from their false ideologies. I mean, that is crucial. You know, when, when you kind of hit these pressure points with some people, they're holding on so tightly that this is, this is, this has to be true. This is all I know to be true. You're, yeah. you're ripping at the very fabric of what I believe to be is part of the Christian life and what the word of God says. And, and actually, they're being bound, um, sometimes un- unconsciously. Um, mm-hmm. i, I got to be careful with my words there, but they're being bound to yeah. something that the scripture doesn't bind them to. Yeah, and, men love lies. Yes. Right? Our, in our unbelieving state, we love lies. We love to yes. be lied to. We like believing lies. Lies make us comfortable. The truth makes us uncomfortable. 
And so men will always choose lies over truth in their unbelieving state because they're at war with God. They're hostile to the law of God and their hearts not only do not want to submit themselves to the law of God, they can't submit themselves to the law of God and to God's truth. And so while they may acknowledge some true things, really their worldview comes from the devil and they are children of the father of lies. And so they are, they swim in lies, they listen to lies, they tell lies and they believe lies. That, that is all of us in our unbelieving state. So the, the, the war that we wage for the truth, the spiritual battle that we're waging for and with the truth is really designed to set men free from those lies, to show them the truth of God so that the light of the gospel may shine upon their hearts and they'll be liberated from their bondage to Satan, to themselves and to their, to their flesh and to sin. That's exactly right. So I want to jump into chapter two, just a little bit, and you bring up this really interesting dichotomy. And we mentioned that folks kind of either do the obsessiveness about the Holy Spirit to the detriment of the word or the word without the Holy Spirit. But you kind of bring up this idea as well with Satan and the demonic realm and the ditches to fall in are uh, being obsessed with Satan and kind of attributing everything that goes wrong or bad to Satan and his you know, plans or pretending that he doesn't exist, ignoring him altogether. And kind yeah. of these two ditches. And I love that. I'm pretty sure that was in chapter two. I may have had a different reference there, but you probably know what I'm speaking of. Yeah, I do. I know what you're talking about. So, yep. yeah, yeah. So just talk just a little bit for just a minute or two, kind of these these two ditches that that you have seen with. And I've seen it personally. Um, I, I kind of lean toward the uh, blame everything on Satan. Everything is the devil's fault. Right. And it kind of becomes this. Uh, there's no responsibility for the Christian in their own sin, you know? Yeah. Anyway, just speak to that for a minute or two. Yeah. It's kind of like the old flip Wilson line, the devil made me do it. And yep. and it kind of characterizes one side or sort of just encapsulates, I guess I should say, say one side of the, of the ditch that Christians can fall into. Um, and, and as you mentioned that there are really two sides to this. The one is the, the side of the, the, the error where we, we don't pay any attention to the devil. We, we pretend that he has no influence in this world. We almost view him as a, a figment of biblical imagination or sort of a metaphor for evil, generically speaking, in the world. And it's amazing how many believers in Christ give no thought to the ways in which the devil is deceiving us and controlling media and controlling our entertainment and indoctrinating us through the public education system and the books that we read and the, and the culture that surrounds us. They give no thought to the wiles of the devil. And Paul said, I think it was the Corinthians, we're not, we're not ignorant of his devices. Many Christians are ignorant of his devices because they just don't give any thought at all to how in the ways in which they can be deceived and are being deceived. And then on the other side of the road, the far other sort of extreme in that perspective is to so obsess on the devil that everything becomes, he gets credit for everything. There's a devil behind every bush and underneath every rock every difficulty, every, you know, missed traffic light, every I'm late to work. That must be the devil that did that. I slept through my alarm. That must be the devil trying to keep me from something. Um, you know, I didn't get a good night's sleep last night. That was the devil. I had a bad dream. That was the devil. Uh, I did had a, a bad interaction with my wife today. We got in an argument. That was the devil. And he just, he gets blamed, or I should say, we give him credit for everything. And you'll notice that in, in all of those instances, my flesh, my own laziness, my own apathy, my own forgetfulness doesn't have any place at all in that. So in all of the sins of my life, if I blame it all on the devil, then there's no place for my own personal repentance and mortification of sin mm. and turning from sin and putting off the old man and putting on the new man and denying the flesh and, and mortifying the deeds of the flesh. There's no role for that. Mm. If Satan gets credit for all the bad things that I do and all the bad things that happen to me. So can the devil cause those things to happen? He certainly can, but I can't blame it on him unless I have some sort of direct revelation telling me that the reason I was late today is because the devil made my alarm silent when it should have been uh, going yeah. off. Uh, so that's, I, I think that sometimes Christians just want to blame everything on the devil. And, and maybe part of what's behind that is the desire to um, the desire to see themselves constantly every day, always in a spiritual battle. 
right? They're fighting against the devil. They're trying to be aware of what he might be doing to trip them up or trick them at this last minute. And, and, and that way they, they see themselves as always engaged. The devil's always trying to attack me. So I must be doing the Lord's work. And so there's a, there's a bit of pride in that side of blaming everything on the devil. As if that's, you a, are that's a good observation, focus. actually. Yeah. Yeah. The focus of his work in the modern world is to keep you late for work, uh. you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and that I think gives him too much credit. And I think it, it blames him for uh, far too much. Yeah. And so there, there needs to be a balance between those two. I agree, man. You're, I mean, you've, you've, and I keep saying pressure point. I I think that is the pressure point here. You've really put your thumb on it, that there is imbalance in in these views. Yes, of course, the devil is alive and well and working. Um, Absolutely so. But the, the blaming everything on him is actually rooted in self-righteousness that I'm actually pretty good. It's the devil's fault. I'm, I'm okay. As long as he's not trying to, you know, (laughs) you know, trip me up. I'm a pretty it's good not my sin. It's not, <laughs> not my flesh. Yeah. It's not my false beliefs. Yeah. It's not my laziness. Nothing for me to repent of. Nothing for me to change. It's just that that yeah. devil made me do it. Yeah, I'm crushing it right now. You know, and the devil <laughs> right. just keeps kind of. <laughs> like I'm, I'm crushing it. I'm so crushing it that he has to try and do everything he can to stop me from crushing it. Exactly, and that that root of that is self righteousness, pride, yeah. ego, and yeah. and you know what? Uh, and we'll have to cut this portion off. Uh, but there is a. Um, there is a lack of looking to Christ as our sufficiency and our who he replenishes us through his spirit um, and, and gives us the grace, gives us the means to mortify the flesh. Right. And there's there's a there's a la- there's a complete reversal. We're not looking to Christ in this whole situation with this these two ditches. Uh, yeah. It seems it seems to me um, as our sufficiency, um, right. understanding our weakness and our frailty. Um, in the Christian life. So we, we were just talking about the chapter two, Jim, uh, about uh, this these two ditches to fall in, giving too much blame to Satan and also just ignoring him completely. And we were talking a little bit about we give Satan too much credit, right? There's, there's yeah. too much that we, uh, he takes far too much credit for our own sin. Um, I was just recently reading, um, flipping through uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, I was flipping through that, and that's a fascinating fictional take on kind of the demonic realm. And um, I think that that may have a little bit something to do. I don't know if you've read it or if you are familiar with it, but it may have a little yeah. bit of some interplay with kind of this giving far too much credit to the to the devil and his his. I don't know if you have any thoughts with that. I'm just throwing that in there real quick. Yeah, I think the strength of C.S. Lewis's uh, screw tape letters is just the the way it, it's it's not so much it's not so much a critique or an analysis of how the devil works as it is about how we as humans fall prey to his ploys, and how it's 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 it wasn't you know screw tape's advice to Wormwood was not. Um, you know, make make your client uh, lust, make your client or your patient. That was the word he used. Make your yeah. patient lust, make your patient yeah. late for work. It was how, how do you deceive him? How do you trick him? How do you distract him? How do you get mm-hmm. him preoccupied with the things of this life and the mm-hmm. things of this world to keep him from focusing on the enemy, which in Screwtape's language was reference to, to God? Absolutely. So yep. that was, I think it's an insightful commentary on the, the nature of our humanity and how we are so easily led astray in errors of truth and fiction and truth and error, as well as being distracted from the things that should be preoccupying us here in this world. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, so let's let's jump a little bit forward. So I think this is still in chapter two, but I would love for you to do you did you give a specific definition of spiritual warfare in your book? I think that you did. I, I wasn't able to put eyes on it before our recording. Can you just give me your just what do you define spiritual warfare as? Maybe as you are teaching your church, preaching through stuff, you have a specific definition. Um, I, I would say that spiritual warfare simply defined is not a battle for territory that we have to claim the territory, physical things that the devil has taken over like, uh, buildings and rooms and neighborhoods and cities and geographical locations or people or houses. Um, but that it is a battle for truth. We are waging a battle against lies and the father of lies through the proclamation of the truth. 
So it's good sitting down and recording a episode like this, where we're talking about biblical truth and biblical doctrine, seeking to set people free from false beliefs and superstitions about the devil and spiritual warfare. This is, this is waging real spiritual warfare. We're not binding Satan. We're not canceling generational curses. We're not uh, rebuking the devil. We're not doing performing exorcisms and claiming people and territory from the devil and his strongholds we are uh, we are seeking to persuade the minds of men's minds of men regarding the truth so that they will be set free from their mental fortresses so second corinthians chapter 10 the passage where paul talks about the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in god for the pulling down of strongholds and casting down arguments and every exalted thing that exalts itself up puffs itself up against the knowledge of god Paul there is describing the mental fortresses, the ideological strongholds, atheism, agnosticism, false religions, um, the spirit of our age. It's, it's lies that we tell ourselves and lies that the world tells us and lies that the devil tells us that we believe that keep us insulated against the knowledge of the true God and the truth of Scripture. That is, unbelievers believe these lies, and sometimes Christians can fall prey to them as well. We, we're setting men free from those things by proclaiming and advancing and defending the truth of God. That's Absolutely. Yeah, and I would say that definition describes exactly what you do every Sunday morning when you open the Word of it God is. and preach to your people. It is. Teaching, teaching Scripture, proclaiming Scripture, proclaiming the Gospel, sharing the Gospel, answering objections, writing books, defending the truth, going on podcasts, advancing the cause of Christ revealed in His Word. That is spiritual warfare. That's so good. Okay. So like I said earlier, we're going to skip some of the middle portion where you really take some of these ideologies to task and some of these false assumptions, but I want to jump ahead to chapter 13 and kind of look at the end of the book a little bit. So I'm going to read uh, the first paragraph of chapter 13, and we can talk about this for just a a minute. Um, Spiritual warfare and sanctification wonderful chapter really good Most people don't realize how connected those two things are but they're they're intimately connected absolutely so so you write here um the opening paragraph of chapter 13 few things are more obvious to a new believer than the reality of persistent remaining sin the regenerating work of the holy spirit and his indwelling uh, his indwelling bring an, an awareness of sin that the unregenerate person is incapable of knowing Suddenly, a new believer sees sin in his life and feels compelled to battle against them. And since scripture teaches that the unredeemed flesh persists with us until death, Romans 7 and 8, this constant war against sin can be very discouraging and perplexing to a new Christian. Now, that is extremely relatable uh, paragraph there. Everyone, every believer has been there, right? Every believer is either right there now or is going to be or has been there. And so uh, unpack a little bit, just a little bit what you're what you're trying to communicate in this chapter, just overall in the spiritual warfare and sanctification conversation. Yeah. So we're aware that we we wrestle with indwelling sin. So a believer that, you know, the day before he gets saved, he goes through the checkout aisle and he sees all the bikini clad women on the front pages of the magazines and and his eyes linger there and he thinks and he lusts and he considers and compares that one with every other woman he's ever seen. And, and his mind goes a wandering. And, and then the day after he gets saved, he goes to the same checkout aisle and he sees those things and his mind starts to go down that road. And suddenly he feels guilty. He feels convicted. Well, that's the presence of the spirit of God in your life. And suddenly your conscience has been made uh, alive and alert and now is informed by a new affection that is present in your heart. And that new affection is not as strong as it will be in 20 or 30 years. It's not as strong as you want it to be, but it's there and it's going to grow over the course of time. And then the more we grow, the more aware we become of indwelling and remaining sin that I, I do not do the things that I want to do and the things that I don't want to do. I do. That's Romans seven, right? Yes. So we have this, this wrestling inside of us where we are aware of these evils that still reside deep in our hearts. And the more we are sanctified and the more we walk with the Lord and understand scripture, the more aware we become of this indwelling sin. And sometimes a, a, an inability to do the things that we want to do and to live in righteousness. And, and we certainly wrestle against that. And so as, since we're all aware that that exists and since that is the common experience for apostles and everyday Christians, what is the answer to that? Well, the spiritual warfare movement says the answer to that is 
that you have been afflicted with a generational curse. Your dad was a luster and your grandfather was a luster and your great uncle committed adultery. So everybody who has your bloodline, everybody who has your last name that you're related to by blood, they have a curse upon them because of their sin. And God visits that curse to the third and the fourth generation. So therefore you're a luster and you're an adulterer and you have this sin, this demon attached to your bloodline. So the answer then is to renounce that and to find out what that demon's name is. Let's just call him the demon of lust and to renounce that demon and pray against him and plead the blood of Jesus over your bloodline and to wake up every day and renounce that curse and say that curse has been broken by the blood of Christ and the work on the cross. And, and now then you have to rebuke the devil every time you are lustful and you have to send him to hell and, and cast him down to where he belongs and, and give him a good talking to and let him know exactly what you think of him and his work and renounce that and any other curses or bloodline uh, afflictions that may be afflicting your entire family. And you have to do this for every sin, by the way, your temptation to lie, your temptation to lust, gossip, slander, greed, covetousness, idolatry, apathy, indolence, laziness, etc. All these sins are all the result of this demonic curse or this demonic territory. Satan's claimed it and you have to reclaim it. That's the territory view of spiritual warfare, which makes your sanctification, this long list of prayers and mantras and incantations and renunciations and hex canceling and, and all of that stuff. That's your sanctification is this long list of, of, uh, of, of procedures you have to go through each and every day and then put on the armor of God, right? You have to visibly in, in your mind, mm -hmm. put on the mm -hmm. helmet of salvation and the, and yep. the sword of the spirit, et cetera, take all these things up and you have to go through this process each and every day. It's a vexing, burdensome, view of spiritual warfare and sanctification. And I can't possibly live a holy life if I don't do all of this first thing in the morning. And every time I sin or have a temptation, I have to go through all of this routine. The biblical answer is so much more simple. The biblical yes. answer is that my lust is not a result of a generational curse or Satan claiming territory. My lust comes from the depths of my own heart. It is the heart that is wicked above all things. And within me, within Jim Osmond, is this unredeemed flesh. There is this this flesh has deep ruts and it has a long memory and a powerful memory. And it wants to do the thing that it did before I was redeemed. So there is within me, these competing affections an affection that my flesh, this unredeemed body desires certain things and my new nature, my new spirit, my new affection, the, the new man in Christ Jesus also desires certain things and they are opposed to one another. So the flesh battles against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So the remedy that, that then in terms of sanctification for that is that I deny my flesh and I mortify that sin. I say no to temptation. And in the language of Ephesians 5 and Romans chapter 8, I am led by the spirit in terms of putting to death the deeds of the flesh and walking in the power of the spirit, uh, informing my mind, my mind, my affections, my desires with truth of God's word that I walk in righteousness and put off the old man and his deeds and put on the new man, which is created in Christ Jesus and renewed according to righteousness so that I walk in righteousness. And in the language of Romans six, I'm, I'm simply, um, I'm, I'm simply yielding my members as instruments of righteousness so that they become slaves of righteousness. And I am denying or not yielding my members as instruments of sin when they once were slaves of sin. So, Notice the two entirely different approaches. One involves me taking responsibility for my sin, that this is part of me, and I put it to death, and I walk in righteousness according to the promises of God. The other one is this terrible yoke, this burden of identifying generational curses and hexes, praying the hedge of thorns, pleading the blood of Jesus, renouncing curses, um, uh, um, rebuking the devil, reproving the devil, casting out demons, following an exorcism, claiming territory, etc. And those two different approaches to spiritual warfare, they couldn't be more different. One of them is a biblical approach that will result in sanctification and holiness. And the other is an unbiblical approach that gives all that focus and emphasis, not to the source of sin, which is my fallen flesh, but to Satan and his works and his deeds. So two totally different approaches to sanctification. And yeah, I think you nailed it right there. That was a great uh, explanation. So I, I pulled a quote from your book from page 180. It kind of summarizes what you've just said, but this is kind of one of your uh, a thesis, if you will, that scripture doesn't describe sin, of course, uh, in the life of the Christian specifically, doesn't describe sin as the result of possession 
oppression or curses in the life of the believer. And I think that was a really powerful sentence to kind of sum, sum up what you just said. Um, there's so much uh, that I've heard. It's, I mean, it's on social media everywhere. Um, people are just inundated with this um, speak in the name of Jesus against this, yeah. or, you know, it's, it's like, it's like you load Jesus up in your slingshot and like pelt. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You throw his name out there with, uh, and, and, and you and throw you the blood of Jesus. It, you got to make the right mantra. Speak right? it. Say, right. Yep. And you got to make it, you got to manifest his presence or something, you know, all of these kinds of things. And it's just, it, it I don't want to, we could easily, you know, mock it in, in kind of in a, in a chiding way. And, but there, there is a little bit of just kind of like, ha, have you read the new Testament? Have you right. like, I want to say, dear Christian, have you, have you opened the word and, and seen what, uh, what God has given us already as a means of, of battling this? And you would quickly see that what you're hearing and what you're reading are two very different things. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, if you're tempted to use the name of Jesus or the term blood of Jesus or something like that as a mantra, some some magical incantation that once you utter it, you're you're claiming territory, you're reproving the devil, the demons are fleeing away, etc. You're using you're understanding this entirely wrongly. Um, well, that, I that think is not how the name of Jesus and those words are, are used. Yeah, I think that some of that stems from, well, if you're Jesus's followers and Jesus did this in his earthly ministry, then you're now empowered by the Holy Spirit yep. to go walk in the steps of Jesus and to claim territory, right? Because that's apparently yep. what Jesus was doing, right? You know, that's how they see here. it. Yeah. Am, am so I wrong with that? No, that's that's exactly how it's viewed by some. And the, the faulty assumption is that all the authority that Jesus had on earth is now ours and and all the authority yes. he has now in heaven is now ours. And exactly. I deal with that in a chapter of the book as well. Yes. Yeah. And listener, uh, we've missed 150 pages of the core stuff of the book. He deals with all of these issues that he has just brought up. So, again, read the book. Um, actually, real quick, a little commercial, your AGTV series. I, I, I watched that several months back. Oh, it's actually really helpful thanks, as well. Thanks, Duffy. Appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I watched that together. I think I told you last year that we watched the God Doesn't Whisper together uh, Thank you. series as well. So anyhow, really helpful stuff. But again, he deals with that already. So all these terms that we're using, uh, you can read for yourself later on. But let me let me jump to the meat of this and let's end our conversation here today, Jim. Talk about the Ephesians six and the armor of God. I kind of want to save this for last. It's chapter 14 where you really kind of demystify uh, the whole armor of God section in Ephesians chapter six. I think it's been abused and misused by yeah. so many. And I've been, I've, I've been on the receiving end as a kid in the Southern Baptist convention, going to vacation Bible school. I mean, it, it's just a fact. It's just, I think it's been mishandled. Yeah. Um, and what Paul is what Paul's intent was and his application for that, for the life of Christians. So let's just end our episode, maybe five or seven minutes. Talk about Ephesians six for us. Yeah. You would think a book on spiritual warfare would begin with Ephesians six and just simply be about Ephesians six, but you, you noticed it was chapter 14, which is at the end of the book. Yeah. Um, so how do you deal with spiritual warfare without addressing Ephesians chapter six? And a lot of treatments on spiritual warfare treat Ephesians chapter six as if it's a standalone text and there's no chapters one through five and a half, you know, it's chapter six, verse 10 and following. And so what, what I point out in Truth of Territory is that chapter six of Ephesians is, it's not that it is the conclusion of the book of Ephesians. And it's that, that armor of God is not given to us as um, a, a metaphor to be exegeted on its own merits so that the, the helmet of salvation, see, most people like read, for instance, the helmet of salvation, um, you know, take up the helmet of salvation and say, okay, what does that, what function did a helmet have in, in Roman society or to a Roman soldier? And they want to exegete the function of a helmet and then somehow tie that to salvation as if the point of the analogy is the function of the helmet or the function of the feet shod with, with sandals or the function of the breastplate of righteousness or the function of the belt of truth, the, the belt. So they're exegeting the analogy of a Roman soldier. A Roman soldier becomes the subject of their exegesis rather than these things, salvation, truth, peace, etc. that Paul mentions and ties to these, 
these elements of the of the armor. And so most applications of that go like if you, for instance, read uh, Thomas White or Mark Bubeck or Neil T. Anderson, they have they'll mention the, the helmet of salvation. They'll say, OK, what does a helmet do? Here's what it does. Here's what salvation is. Therefore, I need to envision myself praying and applying the helmet of salvation. I need to see myself putting on salvation like a Roman soldier puts on a helmet. And I need to pray certain things about salvation and how it relates to my mind or my head or the vital organ of my brain. And I need to go through this prayer mantra and and hash all of this out in prayer. And then after I spent, you know, two, three minutes doing that, then I need to go on to the next piece of armor and do that. And this has to be done every single day. And my point is that the the Ephesians, uh, the Ephesians 6 armor of God passage is not the main point of Ephesians. It's the conclusion of it. So what Paul mm. is doing in chapter 6 is he is taking all of these things that he has spent five and a half chapters talking about. Mm. Salvation, truth, peace with God, righteousness, etc. And he is then saying, he's bringing all of these main themes of Ephesians together. And he's saying, these things which are part and parcel of salvation, this is all that you have been given in Christ from before the foundation of the world. God has blessed you with these things. Now appropriate them, live them out, walk them out, don them in your day-to-day life, just like a Roman soldier dons that armor. So it is when you don these virtues in your life and begin to walk in the truth and righteousness and peace and sanctification and holiness and salvation, when you begin to walk that out in your day-to-day life, you are then protected from the assaults of the enemy. So yes, it's true that our war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and and these evil forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Our our enemies are not physical enemies. They're spiritual enemies. How can I be protected and how can I wage that war? By living out truth and peace and righteousness and grace and salvation and holiness in my day-to-day life. When I when I walk in obedience to the commands of Christ given to me and I appropriate that which has been given to me in Christ Jesus, uh, blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, then I am protected by the enemy and then I can effectively wage a truth war in this world and fight the lies of the enemy. That is how Ephesians 6 should be handled. It's it's tying in everything from the book of Ephesians. So if you have a book or you've read a book about the armor of God that doesn't treat that, in the terms of the themes of everything else in Ephesians and more emphasis given to the pieces of the armor, belt, sandals, helmet, etc., you're reading a warped view of Ephesians chapter six and somebody who's mishandling the text, I think. Yeah. And I think just to summarize what you just said is you've missed the point. You've missed what Paul is saying completely if that's where you end up and that's what you're taking away. So let me read a couple of things from page 198. I love, it's going to tack right on. But we're going to ask, uh, I want to ask you a question. Who isn't our enemy within the realm of spiritual warfare? And I think there's a lot of talk about, you know, this is your enemy. You got to protect from this. This is your enemy. This is, that's your enemy. And so I'm just going to read a couple of things here and and yeah. this, we'll wrap things up here. Um, you, you write this, your battle, talking to the Christian, your battle is not against the boss who won't let you leave your Bible on your desk. The enemy is not the school principal who won't allow your child to wear a Christian t-shirt. The enemy is not the humanist judge who rules that, quote, under God in the Pledge of Allegiance is unconstitutional. The enemy is not a political party, a candidate, a congressman, the unsaved spouse hostile to Christ, or a local elected official. The enemy is not the abortion provider, the homosexual activist, or the ACLU. These people are not the enemy they are the mission field. That's right. And that is the most uh, flipped upside down. I think uh, you've captured it right there. Um, what we are given often, what's served up to us in popular Christian media and publishing is the exact opposite of what you just wrote and what you've already been describing is that we have these, we have far too much horizontal despair and that I got to stay away from that. I've got to stay away from her or this situation. And all of these are coming attacking me. And I've got to like, I've got to fortify myself, you know, in, yeah. in some way. And I, I, that's no way to live. First of all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, take that list of people that you just mentioned there, the political party, the politician, the humanist judge, the school principal, if we did what God has called us to do, which is to proclaim and to defend the truth and become so familiar with scripture that we're living that out. And we are 
We are assaulting people's false ideologies that you wouldn't have a humanist judge if he got saved. He wouldn't be a humanist. He would be a Christian. And he wouldn't rule that way because he would be informed by truth. You wouldn't, if your school principal was a believer, they wouldn't keep your kids from wearing Christian t-shirts in school if your school board was made up of believers. So our goal is not to fight against these people as if they are the ones who are imposing this worldview. They do these things because they have believed lies, because they're living in accordance with lies. Therefore, real spiritual warfare is to proclaim the truth and get the truth to them and pray that the truth would advance to the point where their hearts and minds and souls would be liberated from their mental fortresses and their lies, and they would be set free into the truth of Christ. And once they do that and begin to walk in the truth, then, of course, they are our brothers and no longer our mission field, but our brothers. And then they wouldn't be believing and advancing the lies that we see them living and advancing today. Yeah. And, and when they become brothers or sisters in Christ, even if there is opposition there, it's attacked in a completely different way. We actually have a mandate right. in scripture, how to deal with that sinning against a brother. And that becomes a whole other realm, right? Yeah. So they're totally still not topic. our enemy. That's right. <laughs> you know, yeah, still not our enemy. Even still, if they disagree with us as believers. It, it, bingo. And so I think we have this convoluted. I, I love that. That's probably one of the most helpful sections. And I think if, if people would, you know, I can just see someone picking up the book and getting about two chapters in and thinking, ah, I don't know if I want to read any more of this, <laughs> but if they can make it that far, <laughs> yeah, you know, that that's like a paradigm shift there that I think folks need to, I didn't say anything negative about what you've written, but it, it really, it's going to really just great on the, the affections of folks who have holding on to stuff. That's not uh, truthful. Um, yeah. I, I, say in, I say in the book at one point that, um, if you're reading through this book, and I think I said it in God Doesn't Whisper as well, if you're reading through this book and you feel like, you know, your your sacred cow has been attacked, you you yeah. have been personally attacked, you feel like a, a whole worldview is being dismantled, I, I want to encourage the reader, I feel your pain because I believe these things and practice these things at one time as well. So I know the pain with this and the hearing the voice of God philosophy. I, yeah. I feel the pain of having your entire structure of what you thought was true regarding spiritual warfare, hearing the voice of God come crumbling down. And you feel like you're standing amongst the ruins and saying, uh, all right, well, if what I've just believed for all these years is not true, now what? Now what do I do? Now what do I say? How do I approach this? And, and I hope that in both of those books, I have helped believers sort of reconstruct a biblical framework in the place of the unbiblical worldview that was there. But you, you, I think as, as, as believers, sometimes we get caught up in paradigms and ways of thinking that they need to be just dismantled and brought down entirely so that we can begin from a, a solid foundation to build a biblical framework on top of that. And that's what the book does. So if you read it and you're like, man, I, I hate where this is going. Hear me out. Analyze yeah. the biblical arguments. Read the passages. Study the passages in their own context, and and hear what I'm saying, and and then evaluate it. But don't get halfway through and just and just bail on it because you're afraid to, you're afraid to face the truth, or you're afraid to feel like you have just been completely, you know, had your entire paradigm dismantled. It, I've said yeah. that sacred cows make the best hamburger. And, and that's true. I think it was Haddon <laughs> Robinson who oh. said that. And I'm, I'm glad wow. to have had every sacred cow that I've had thrown into mm. the meat grinder. I'm glad to have had it thrown into the meat grinder because wow. in the case of the spiritual warfare methodology and hearing from the voice of God methodology, those sacred cows have liberated me from more superstition and frustration than I ever could have imagined. Mm. Man, that is a fire line right there. I love that. <laughs> That's like t-shirt material, man. <laughs> well, hey, so uh, Jim, thank you for taking your time today. Uh, I know we had a couple of technical difficulties and That's just been a pleasure. Not, it's not going our way, but you know what? Satan doesn't get the credit for that one. That's right. That's right. <laughs> It's just he just wanted issues. us to hang out for longer. That's that's exactly right. But I want to end today. Um, before I do, I'm going to read a quote that you have here from Spurgeon. And I know you just gave a, a really kind of a, a pastoral exhortation to, to stick with it. Do you have any final thoughts to someone who is going to pick this up, not really understanding what they're going to read, and then they kind of get into it and are kind of shell-shocked? Any more pastoral encouragement or exhortation before we wrap the podcast up? The truth will set you free. Mm. 
That's it. Just okay. it, it, the more we need to conform our hearts, our minds, our thinking, our behavior, our practice, our habits, everything to the word of God. That's what it truly means to, to, to walk in the spirit, to be filled with the spirit, to become Christ-like. The, the method by which we do that is to submit our traditions and our false theologies and everything to the word of God. And if, and let the word of God take a sledgehammer to things in our lives that are false, because those falsehoods bind us into lies yes. and those falsehoods bind us into false practices and they cripple our walk with Christ. And we are better served when we are liberated and we function according to the word of God. And that informs everything about our thinking, our theology and our practice. Yeah. And just to follow that up briefly, I think we're so caught up sometimes in thinking that we are sufficient. We have what it takes to uh, continue in the Christian life. But what we don't realize is the sufficiency of the word is what is really sufficient. We are deficient. We need the word. We need the spirit in our lives to walk with us and um, to teach us these things and to show us and illumine the truth of the word in our in our lives. So I'm going to end with a, Sp a Spurgeon quote that you have on page 218. I thought this was just wonderful. I didn't even know that he wrote this book. So great find. And I'm thankful that you footnoted this in here. But Spurgeon wrote that if you would successfully wrestle with Satan, make the Holy Scriptures your daily commune. Out of the sacred word, continually draw your armor and ammunition. Lay hold upon the glorious doctrines of God's word. Make them your daily meat and drink. So shall you be strong to resist the devil, and you shall be joyful in discovering that he will flee from you. I think there's nowhere, no better way to end the episode there. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks, Jim, for joining me today. Uh, it's Thank been a you. pleasure to, to talk with you, and I'm looking forward for our church to be going through the content of your book. Likewise. Um, Thank you. Yeah, man. Well, thank you, listener, as well, for taking your time to listen to today's episode of the Asking for a Friend podcast. I know I can speak for Jim that I hope it's been a blessing to you. Don't forget, though, before you go, like and share the podcast with someone that you think would also benefit from it. Um, I have a feeling that you, there may be someone that comes to mind that you would want to share this with. Um, please get that either through our Podbean app or through the YouTube video or however you want to share that. And don't forget, lastly, if you ever want us to look at a question to answer on the, the Asking for a Friend podcast to look through or think through, um, you can submit us one on our church website, bbcemory.org. Go to the media tab, go to the bottom of the page and scroll there and you'll find a box that you can submit us a question. But as usual, until next time, grace and peace be with you all.